This morning I woke up and I was thinking some sad thoughts. I was remembering in the last 42 years and 10 months of the pastor of the churches that I have pastored. When I got out of seminary, they gave me a little district. They had four churches in it. That was 43 years ago. Of those four churches, there are two of them that are still left functioning. The other two didn't make it. Then I moved to another district that had three churches, and uh, now there are two. One of them didn't make it, and the other two we visited last fall on our way back from, to Texas from uh, North Dakota, and those two are weak and dying. How many think that makes me feel bad? I went to a district in Wyoming. One of those churches have died. There were four churches I had there. I don't suppose you want to hear me go over all of it, but there's nine of them. Of I didn't count all the churches I've pastored because, as I said, there have been places where uh, I've had four at one time. One time I had five at one time. And I think of all the churches in 43 and a half years, uh, nine or ten of them are no longer functioning. That was a kind of depressing thought, wasn't it? And as a pastor, sometimes you look back and you can't help but feel a little bit guilty that what could I have done different in that church to have kept it going? Some of them, it was just farming areas, and you know that with the tractors they have, it's taken fewer and fewer people to farm more and more acres, and I'm sure that had something to do with it. But you can read in the Bible about a church that God says your light might go out. Can you think of a church like that? Let's go to the book of Revelation. And it's in Revelation chapter 2. Now, when you read about the church that's mentioned here in Revelation chapter 2, it's called it the church of Ephesus. And when you read back in the book of Acts, it talks about Paul going to Ephesus and how things really were good at Ephesus. And when you read about the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, starting verse 2, God says there are good things going on at Ephesus. It says, I know thy works and thy labor... Is that good? Should, should Christians who know Jesus, will they be doing good works? Will they be working for the Lord? So what it says. Thy patience and how thou canst bear them that are evil. Uh, should we love evil people? Yes. Should we love their deeds? Absolutely not. Should be, we be working to get people who are doing evil deeds to know God so they don't do evil deeds? Yes, we should. You can't bear them that are evil. Thou hast tried them that say they are apostles and are not and found them liars. Should we listen to people preach when they are preaching things that are not the truth? It says that when people came and they weren't teaching the truth, they checked them out. Verse 3, and has borne and has patience and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Are all those good things? Then you skip down to verse 6. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And I did a little bit of studying. Who are the Nicolaitans? They are a kind of Christian who say, it doesn't make any difference what you do as long as your heart is right. And that's a deception too, isn't it? Because I say, if your heart is right, you're going to be concerned about what you do. So how many can see here that the church of Ephesus had a lot of things that God says, I agree with what you're doing. I agree with what you preach. Amen? But when you go back to verse 5, well, verse 4, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Why? 
because thou hast left thy first love. Then verse 5 says, Remember therefore from which thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. How many recognize that Pastor Stoffer is a little bit depressed this morning? This is one of those sermons that just does that to me because here's a church that's doing the right things, that God is commending them for the right things. And yet when you get to verse 4 and 5, it says, I have something against you. You've, you've fallen. You've left your first love. And unless you find your first love, your candlestick will go out. Your light will go out. How many can see why Pastor Stoffer is depressed? I shouldn't be thinking about all those churches that died, but I can think of two or three of them that fit the description of Ephesus. As far as, as doing what is right, as far as working hard, as far as, as not putting up with, with wrong teaching, they were right down the line. But they left their first love. Is it possible to do right for the wrong reason? Now, one of the things you have heard me say from this pulpit is that I believe that it's, it's better to do right for the wrong reason than not to do right at all. How many have ever heard me say that? And I, I think there's some biblical evidence that what I say is true because I look at the disciples, and you've heard me say this before, but the disciples followed Jesus for the three and a half years, and you can find even at the Last Supper they were still bickering with each other who's going to get the best job because they looked at Jesus, they recognized this really is the Messiah. Their misunderstanding was that he was going to drive the Romans out and set up a kingdom, and we're going to be right there with him. And the mother of James and John came to Jesus with her two sons. You read it there carefully. They were there with their mother, and they said, when you set up your kingdom, because my sons sit one on the right hand, one on the left. And it says the other ten disciples found out what was gone, and they were really upset. Were they following Jesus for the wrong reason? Well, for a while, did they finally find the right reason? Yes, but was G- how did Jesus feel about them with their wrong reasons? Was Jesus grieved? Yes, he was. Praise the Lord, he put up with them, and they kept hanging around Jesus, and pretty soon they got the right reasons. But if you don't find the right reasons, sooner or later, your light will go out. Are you with me? Now... You know that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is called the what chapter? The love chapter. And there's good reason for that because that's what it talks about. But I want you to turn there to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and you will discover that there are a lot of things that in and of themselves are good things that can be done for the wrong reasons. Now, if you read through the entire book of 1 Corinthians, you'll discover that the reason that the book of 1 Corinthians was written was because of the fact that there were things going on in Corinth that shouldn't be going on. Amen? And uh, I'm not going to go over that part. If you want to hear that part, come down to Fond du Lac tonight because that's what I am preaching about. And you read through 1 Corinthians all the way through and you scratch your head and you say, Boy, I wouldn't want to remember that church. But they were still God's people. And God still loved them. God still used them. But 1 Corinthians was written to straighten out some problems. And when you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and you go down to verse 31, 
He's been saying to them, you're doing this and this, and because you're doing this and this, you feel like you're better than people who aren't doing what you're doing. And in verse 31, it says, but covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Now, the gifts that Paul is talking about in chapter 12 are gifts that God gives to people that he uses to help strengthen other people and bring people into the church. Amen? How many know that? There's the gift of teaching. There's the gift of of healing. There's the gift of hospitality. Lots of good gifts. And God wants us to figure out what our gift is and use it for his service to bring people to Jesus. Amen? But there is one thing that God wants all of his children to have that when you read 1 Corinthians, you think they were lacking in this. And apparently the church in Ephesus was lacking in this. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 13. By the way, there is a person who at one time lived. For those of you who know, let me say it this way. How many of you here know who Martin Luther was? He is the human being that studied the Bible, that was following God to all the best of the knowledge that he had. And we here in this church believe that God used Martin Luther to teach truth that had been neglected, that needed to be taught. Amen? And you've heard of, of John Wesley. He's a man that God used to teach truth that needed to be taught, and the people who followed him became the Methodist, a lot of Methodists. Well, there is a human being that God used to bring about the truth that is taught in the Seventh-day Adventist church. The only difference is we didn't name our church the White Church or the Lutheran. Well, anyway, there is a person that God used. In this case, it was a lady. She wrote a lot of things, and she said of 1 Corinthians 13 that this is a chapter of the Bible. Now, let me see how much you've read. How many times a year should we read 1 Corinthians 13? Does anybody remember? Oh, I don't have my hearing aid in. Did I hear somebody say 365 times? Who said that? Raise your hand. Oh, it's my wife. (laughs) All right. Once a day. So on leap year, 366 times. You ought to read the chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, at least once a day. Why? Because God wants you to know, am I close to God or not? Now, in John chapter 15, Jesus says he wants us to abide in him. When you're reading in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 6, it says, He that abides in him sins not. I've referred to this text, and for a long time I tried to figure out, what does it mean not to sin? Because everybody knows not to sin is impossible. So what does it mean? And I tried to figure out what it meant not to sin. Finally, a little voice in my head says, Why don't you try to figure out what it means to abide in Jesus and not worried about sin so much? And so the last few years I've been trying to figure out, I've been preaching about, how do you abide in Jesus? How many want to abide in Jesus? The reason that that lady that God used to teach some truth that brought about the Adventist church, the reason that she says that we ought to read 1 Corinthians 13 at least once a day is because God wants us to know, am I abiding in Jesus today? How many think that's a good question? Am I abiding in Jesus today? Now, the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13 are talking about the things that it's possible to do and not be abiding in Jesus when you do it. Verse 1, Though I speak with the tongue of men or angels, have not love. Now, in your, if you have the King James, it says charity. But if you have a little, if you have a marginal references, it'll say the word love. And... That word love in 1 Corinthians 13 comes from the Greek word called agape. And I told you all preachers who go through the seminary have to study Greek, and I remember a little bit of it. 
but I've never pastored a church in which they were Greek-speaking people, so I've lost most of it. But I do remember agape is love. And when you find the word agape in the Bible, it's always associated with God. The text that was our scripture this morning, 1 John 4, 7 and 8, he that loveth not, he that agape is not, knows not God, for God is agape. God is love. Now, in the Greek language, you will find that the Greeks used several words that we have interpreted love. And some of them, the human beings can produce by themselves. When the Bible says, if you love those that love you, you haven't done anything more than the Gentiles do. And that is not agape. That is the word phileo, which means that's how you feel about people who love you, your fellow love. And then there's a word called ergos. You don't have to look too far to find erotic. And human beings used in its right place, it's, it's wrong. It's right. But used in the wrong place, it's wrong. And it's something a human being can produce by themselves. But when you come to the word agape, it always comes from God. Human beings cannot produce agape by themselves. And it's the word that it's used. It says, if you love them which love you, if you phileo them that phileo you, you haven't done anything more than what the heathen do. But I say unto you, you should agape your enemies. And you see, we cannot love our enemies. We cannot love the unlovable unless we have love in our heart comes from God, and that is agape. And that's what it's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 13. So it says, I, if I speak eloquently, if I speak with the tongue of men or angels, if I don't have God's agape love in my heart, I'm just making noise. Amen? And I'm going to be preaching about this tonight, is there is a kind of, of tongues that is just noise. It can be produced by a heart that doesn't have God in it. So if you want to hear that sermon, come down to Fond du Lac tonight. Does anybody know where the Fond du Lac Church is? Anybody doesn't know who wants to come? I will tell you where it is if you want to come. You get off on exit 109, I think. It's, in a way, it's Johnson Street, Highway 23 Johnson Street, and you come up to the ramp and you take a left. You're looking real hard. You can see the church from there. But you should stay on Johnson Street, and when you come to the second overpass, it goes over the railroad tracks. As you start down the 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 far side of that overpass, you look a little bit to your left, you'll see a big green dome. It's the highest thing in Fond du Lac. It used to be the Catholic Church, but now the Adventists use it. As a, you can see the green steeple over there. It's just a block north of Johnson Street. Anyway, you can find it just... Fo- anyway, ready for verse 2. If I have the gift of prophecy, is it possible to have the gift of prophecy without having the love of God in your heart? Well, I can see you shaking your heads no, and you're, you're 99% right. You've had to have the love. But I can read in the Bible about lost people who had the gift of prophecy. Remember the prophet who talked to his donkey? And he wanted, he wanted money, and so he went to curse Israel, and he couldn't curse Israel, all he could say. And there's even one of the prophecies about Jesus being the Messiah that came out of that man's life, out of his mouth. And yet he wound up being lost. So, yeah, it might be possible. It even refers to King Saul at one time in his life prophesied. So is it possible to prophesy and still be a lost person? You can find it a a couple of times because there are people who've had the gift of prophecy and turned their back on God or they've used the gift of prophecy for their own profit. And I am sometimes wondering if these people who are involved in seances and these kind of things, if they would give their hearts to God, if they would not have the gift, they are using a gift that God has given them for Satan. How many know you can take a gift that God has given you and use it for the wrong reason? All right. Though I have the gift of prophecy, and if I understand all mysteries, a person can be very smart, and God can give them a, a, a gift of intelligence, 
but you can use the gift of intelligence for, the, for Satan. Amen? Though I have the gift of prophecy, if I have all knowledge. And it's hard for me to think of faith without knowing Jesus, but it says I have so much faith I can move mountains. If I don't have God's love in my heart, how much is it worth? It's nothing. Verse 3, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. Does Jesus tell us that we ought to help poor people? Here's a text I like. He that gives to the poor lends to the Lord. How many of God came along and says, I need to borrow five bucks? Would you give it to him if you knew it was God? Did I ever tell you the story about the homeless black man that came to and borrowed some money from me one time? How many have heard that story? My wife. All right. Let me tell it to you real quick. How many of you know by this time Pastor Stoffer is kind of a penny pincher? You know, I'm, I'm, I try to be careful with my money. And uh, anyway, I had, I'd gone to the hospital to visit a patient. I'm one of these pastors who will not park in the hospital parking ramp if you have to pay. I'd rather park down the street and walk two or three blocks than give a dollar. Now, do you know what I'm like? And I knew a place near a hospital in Fort Worth where my church members go if they had serious problems. And I would park a couple blocks away, and I could usually find a parking place there. And it was kind of an open area. There were parking lots there that they kept locked, and they wouldn't let people park them. And I have never figured out why. But you'd park your car on the street, and here was a bunch of open area. Anyway, I parked my car there. I got out of the car. I started walking down. I had my Bible in my hand, and I looked across the street. And here was a man who was obviously homeless, and he spotted me with my suit and my tie and my Bible, and he made a beeline for me. And I thought, I'm about to be touched. But I've read the Bible, give to him that asked thee, him that would borrow thee, turn thou not away. And so I try to follow that, and I remind the Lord, he who gives to the poor lends to the Lord. And he came, and he said he was hungry. Could I give him some money? And I said, well, I don't have any money on me. I have money in my car. So I went back to the car, and when I got to the car, this is an area. If you leave your key in the car door, when you come back, there's a good chance it won't be there. It was that part of kind of town, all right? And I got over there, and here was my key in the door. And I thought, boy, am I glad that God sent that homeless man, because I could have lost a whole lot more. So I got in the car and I got him some money so he could buy a meal and he thanked me and he went his way and I started back toward the hospital. I hadn't gone more than across the street than I turned around to look to see where he was and he wasn't anywhere and there was no place he could have gone. So when I get to heaven, I'm going to go up to my garden angel. I says, were you disguised as a homeless black man? <laughs> and there's a good chance he'll say yes because the Bible says make sure that you entertain strangers because some of this are the four entertained angels. So I don't know. I don't know. But I do know this. You can give to poor people for the wrong reason just because the Bible says so and you don't want to do it, but the Bible says do it. Are you with me? All right, though I give all I have to feed the poor, even if I give my body to be burned, and we hear about all the time uh, suicide bombers doing it for the wrong reason. How many are with me? Can you do the right thing for the wrong reason? Is it better to do the right thing for the wrong reason than not to do right at all? Well, Pastor Soffer says yes, but... uh, Let me read you some things. Let me put it this way. If you don't find the right reason, you will stop doing the right thing sooner or later. You've got to find the right reason. I want you to find the right reason. I'm going to read you some things from this lady that God used to start the Adventist church that uh, might almost contradict what Pastor Stauffer is saying. Let me just read some of them. There are those who profess to serve God while they rely upon their own efforts to obey His law, to form a right character and secure salvation. How many want me to read that again? You think, I read it too fast. If you want to find it, it is found in the book Steps to Christ. Anybody here have a book Steps to Christ? 
It's on page 44, and according to my notes, it's paragraph 2, if you have the same edition I do. Let me read it again. There are those who profess to serve God, while they rely upon their own efforts to obey His law, to form a right character, and secure salvation. Now, did you get all that? They're relying on themselves. They, want, they try to obey the law. They try to form right character. They try to secure salvation. Their hearts are not moved by any deep sense of the love of Christ, but they seek to perform the duties of the Christian life as that what God requires of them in order to gain heaven. And you've heard me say it's better to do it for that reason, not to do it at all. But listen to what this dear lady wrote years ago. Such religion is worth nothing. So Bob Stoffer's wrong. I still believe you should do what's right. You know, I want my kids not to smoke because they're afraid of getting lung cancer than to smoke. But I want them to find the right reason. Let me go on, next paragraph. When Christ dwells in the heart, and this is what I want. I want Christ to dwell in me. How many want Christ to dwell in you? Then, and this is why this is here. God wants you to know if, whether or not you're abiding in Jesus, whether or not God is dwelling in you. Because if you are doing the right thing because you want to get salvation and you're seeking to perform the duties of Christian life because God requires it, I want to go to heaven. If you're doing it for that reason, don't stop doing it, but bless your heart, find the right reason, because it says when Christ dwells in the heart, the soul will be so filled with his love, with the joy of communion with him, that it will cleave to him, and in contemplation of him, self will be forgotten. Love to Christ will be the spring of action. Those who feel the constraining love of God do not ask how little may be given to meet the requirements of God. Now, how many have heard of that? How much do I have to do? Do you have to do that to be saved? Well, I want to do it if I have to be saved, but if you don't have to do it to be saved, I don't want to... Stop talking that way. Listen, they do not ask how little may be given to meet the requirements of God. They do not ask for the lowest standard, but aim at perfect conformity to the will of their Redeemer. With earnest desire, they yield all and manifest an interest proportionate to the value of the object they seek. A profession of Christ without this deep love is mere talk dry formality, and heavy drudgery. And you see a person whose religious experience is, is mere talk, dry formality, and heavy drudgery. If they don't find a deeper experience in Christ than that, they sooner or later are going to give it up. Amen? Now, I remember I got in a lot of trouble one time. It was a long time ago, though. I still get in trouble, but different reasons. But there were some of my church members, bless their hearts, who were having Bible studies with their neighbors. And they brought their neighbors to church. And the neighbor stopped the preacher, me, afterwards, and said, do you have to keep the Sabbath to be saved? Now, I'd been studying righteousness by faith, and I knew that there are people, the people who crucified Jesus kept the Sabbath, and they're not going to be saved. And they asked me, do you have to keep the Sabbath to be saved? And what I was thinking is, Sabbath keeping will not save you. How many Sabbath keepers know that Sabbath keeping will not save them? I believe that when you know about the fourth commandment and you love Jesus with all your heart, you're going to want to keep the Sabbath. But I didn't take time to explain all that. I says, no, Sabbath keeping will not save you. And they didn't come to church anymore. And my church member was really mad at me. He says, I just about had those people convinced they had to keep the Sabbath. And you told them they didn't, so they're not going to keep it. How many realize I was in trouble? How many think I said the wrong thing? I probably didn't say enough. But when people ask me what they have to do to be saved, I say, well, there's one thing the Bible says you have to do to be saved. 
Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So when people say, what do I have to do to be saved? I says, you have to give your heart to God. You have to be a born again. Because Jesus says, if you're not born again, you will not even see the kingdom of God. Amen? And when you're born again, you're changed on the inside. You find right motives. And you're not asking, do I have to be saved? You're saying, God, what do you want me to do? Psalms 40, verse 8. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is written in my heart. And that's how you can tell whether or not God is living in you. Your attitude toward God's will is, I like to do God's will. How many of you ever discovered that when you do what God wants you to do, sooner or later down the road, you're going to look back and say, boy, that was a good thing for me to do. Amen? Now, how many want me to read some more of this stuff from this lady? Because I can see by the clock, I'm not going to get into 1 Corinthians 13, 4, 5, 6 and give you deshniff and love. I have discovered when I preach this whole sermon, it takes me about an hour and a half. So I'm giving you the first installment. And when we get back from camp meeting, I'll give you the second installment. So let me read a few more things here that this lady, Ellen White, has said on this stuff. Now, one of the things in the, in the name of our church, Seventh-day Adventist, we know what Seventh-day means, Sabbath because we come here on Saturday, not Sunday. And the last word, Adventist, is not a word that used very much anymore, but back when it was written, it meant they be- Advent means the arrival of somebody, all right? And we believe in the arrival of Jesus. And what brought the Adventist church into existence was there was a man by the name of William Miller who was very much like the disciples. He understood some prophecies, but he misapplied them, just like the Disciples were terribly disappointed because Jesus didn't turn out to be who they thought he was going to be. He turned out to be better than what he thought. He didn't come to deliver them from the Romans. Jesus came to deliver us from our own sinful selves, which is much better than being delivered from the government. Amen? All right. But he taught Jesus was going to come in 1844. Jesus didn't come in 1840. I got a sermon on that that shows that was prophesied. I won't preach that one now anyway. But a lot of people got shaken up because they thought Jesus was going to come pretty soon. They started doing the right thing. Was that a good thing for them to start doing the right thing? Did God want them to find a better reason? Now, I have preached sermons on the second coming of Jesus. How many think I should? I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. I've preached sermons, and, and down in Fond du Lac a couple of weeks ago, I preached on Daniel chapter 2 that talks about the head of gold and the breast and arms of silver and the belly and thighs of brass and the legs of iron, part of iron, and the feet part of iron, part of clay, and the stone that came down, the stone that came down was the second coming of Jesus. Amen? And I want people to be concerned because Jesus is going to come soon. You better get ready. Right? Is that a legitimate thing for an Adventist preacher to do? Yes. But I want you to come to the place that you find a stronger motive. I want you to come to the place where even if Jesus wasn't going to come for a thousand years, your service and devotion to Jesus would be just as much as if he were coming tomorrow, even more so. How many know that God wants you to find a deeper motive than, (gasps) all right? Now, here's what this lady says, and if you want to write this down, it is not in a regular published book. It's in some of those manuscripts but it was put in a devotional book called Lift Him Up that came out as a devotional book about 10 years ago. How many have that devotional book called Lift Him Up? Well, if you do, it's page 98. Now, I'm going to read it to you. And if you would like for me to send you an email, and I say I'm going to do this, and I take a long time to do it, but I can email the notes to this sermon to you if you send me an email. My email, I think, is in the bulletin. Anyway, here's what it says. After all of that, how many are still listening to me? The shortness of time 
Do we believe in the shortness of time? Yes. The shortness of time is frequently urged as an incentive for seeking righteousness and making Christ our friend. Some people need that. But listen to what Ellen White says. This should not be the great motive with us. With who? People are already Christians. The shortness of time, we should have a stronger motive for obedience. Amen? Let me read again. The shortness of time is frequently urged as an incentive for seeking righteousness and making Christ our friend. This should not be the great motive with us for it savors of selfishness. Is it necessary that the terrors of the day of God should be held before us that we may be compelled to right action through fear? It ought not be so. Jesus is attractive. How many say amen to that? Jesus is attractive. Jesus is beautiful. There's no one in the entire universe that you can meet other than the Father, Son, Holy Spirit that are sweeter, nicer to be around than Jesus. Amen? Jesus is attractive. He is full of love, mercy, compassion. He proposes to be our friend, to walk with us through all the rough pathways of life. He says to us, I'm the Lord thy God. Walk with me, and I will fill thy path with light. Now, let me move to another book called Selected Messages, Volume 1, 350, 350. Read that whole chapter in that book. Beautiful. Now, listen up. I'm going to go back and repeat a little bit. Remember I said, this should not be the great motive with us for it savors of selfishness? That motive may get a person started on the right track, but will never finish the work of grace that God wants to find in your heart. Let me read it again. Shortness of time is frequently urged as an incentive for seeking righteousness, making Christ our friend. This should not be the great motive with us for it savors of selfishness. Now I'm going to move down to selected messages. Listen to this. Those who feel weak and discouraged. Anybody ever feel weak and discouraged? Those who feel weak and discouraged may, be, may become strong men of God and do a noble work for the master, but they must work from a high standpoint. They must be influenced by no selfish motive. So those who are weak, there is the capacity for them to be strong men and women of God, but they have got to find a stronger motive than just selfish motives. And a selfish motive, I might be lost, is a motive that gets a person from the wrong track, hit in the right direction. And I say guilt. I said it in Sabbath school this morning. Guilt is like pain. How many think pain is a good thing? I don't see anybody's hand go up. However, if you've got something majorly wrong in you and you start feeling pain and it gets you to the doctor and gets you to the hospital and gets you an operation to get it cut it out, then how many recognize pain's a good thing? There are some people... I don't know what the disease is called. Maybe you could help me out with this. But is there some kind of nerve disease in which you can no longer feel pain? Is there such a disease? I used to think that would be real good when I was a little boy and about to get a spank, and I thought that would be wonderful. But it's also dangerous, isn't it? And a person who is lost and they're not coming to Jesus, it's a good thing for them to feel guilty. Amen? It'll bring them to Jesus. But the motive of fear, the motive of guilt, will never finish the work of grace that God wants to have finished in your heart. Amen? Another thing she said in a book called Christian Experience and Testimony, if the love of God will not induce the rebel to yield, the terrors of an eternal hell will not drive him to repentance. Besides, it does not seem a proper way to win souls to Jesus by appealing to one of the lowest attributes of the mind, abject fear. The love of Jesus attracts. 
It will subdue the hardest of hearts. Amen? Are you mad at me for reading all this stuff to you? Preach, don't read. But once in a while, I find stuff that's better to to read than it is to preach. Let me read you one more. We look to south. And let me start ahead of that. We must believe the naked promise. What's the naked promise? Nothing but promise. What's the best promise in the Bible? You should know that by now. Come on. At least what does Pastor Stoffer think is the best promise in the Bible? That narrows it down, doesn't it? I don't have them here now. You're going to have to shout at me. What's the best promise in the Bible according to Pastor Stoffer? The words to the thief on the cross, you will be with me in paradise. How many recognize if that's not the best, and boy, it's, it's in the top ten. Amen? You're going to be with me in paradise. All right. There's nothing else there, is there? So that promise is naked. We must believe the naked promise and not accept feeling for faith. When we trust God fully, when we rely upon the merits of Jesus as a sin-pardoning Savior, we shall receive all the help that we can desire. Do you need help? Believe the naked promise. You will be with me in paradise. Rejoice over that. And you will receive all the help that you can desire. We look to self as though we had power to save ourselves. But Jesus died for us because we are helpless to do this. In Him is our hope, our justification, our righteousness. How many like that sentence? In Him is our hope, our justification, our righteousness. We should not despond and fear that we have no Savior or that He has no thoughts of mercy toward us. At this very time. What's this very time? Right now, this morning. He is carrying on a work in our behalf, inviting us to come to Him in our helplessness and be saved. We dishonor Him by our unbelief. It is astonishing how we treat our very best friend, how little confidence we repose in Him who is able to save to the uttermost and who has given us every evidence of His love. My brethren, that's all of us, are you expecting that your merit will recommend you to the favor of God, thinking that you must be free from sin before you trust His power to save you? If this is the struggle going on in your mind, I fear that you will gain no strength and you'll finally become discouraged. Isn't that good? If you think that you have got to quit sinning before you come to Jesus to save you, you're going to get discouraged because without Jesus, you cannot quit sinning. Amen? But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No one has said that we shall find perfection in any man's investigations, but this I do know, that our churches are dying I'm back to where I started. Our churches are dying for want of teaching on the subject of righteousness by faith and kindred truth. That's Gospel Workers 301. Final thing here. Some who come to God by repentance and confession. Now, I'm quoting from the book Selected Meshes 353, 354. Get that chapter. It's excellent. Some who come to God by repentance and confession and even believe their sins are forgiven. Now, they've taken a lot of the right steps. They've confessed their sins. They've repented of their sins. And they've asked Jesus to forgive, and they believe they're forgiven. Comma. Still fail of claiming as they should the promises of God. They do not see that Jesus is an ever-present Savior. They're not ready to keep, commit the keeping of their souls to Him, relying upon Him to perfect the work of grace begun on their hearts. It says it's already begun. This is talking about people who have come to Jesus, and they, they confess, they repent, they believe, still fail. How many of this does this describe here? 
This is talking about giving your, letting him keep you. They do not commit the keeping of their souls to him, relying upon him to perform, to perform the work of grace that's already started. While they think they are committing themselves to God, there's a great deal of self-dependence. Now listen, there are conscientious souls. What's a conscientious soul? The Ephesians were conscientious, weren't they? A conscientious soul is a person who down the heart, they really do want to do what God wants them to do. I think this is talking about everybody here. There are conscientious souls that trust partly to God, but partly to themselves. They do not look to God to be kept by His power, but they depend. Now listen to this. They depend upon watchfulness against temptation and the performance of certain duties for acceptance with Him. Now I'm going to dwell on this thing just enough to make me run over time. They depend upon watchfulness against temptation and the performance of certain duties with Him. How many Christians does this describe? Here's what I shouldn't do. Here's what I should do. Does that describe the Christian experience of 99.99% of all Christians. Now, later down here, it says it's all right to do that, but I want you to listen to what it says. They depend upon watchfulness against temptation. Here's what I shouldn't do. Performance of certain duties. Here's what I should do for acceptance with God. How many want to hear the next sentence? Or you want me to wait a month and come back next time? There are no victories in this kind of faith. Such persons toil to no purpose. Their souls are in continual bondage. They find no rest until their burdens are laid at the feet of Jesus. Jesus wants us to find the perfect motive for obedience. And the perfect motive for obedience is, look what Jesus Christ has done for me and to believe the naked promise, you will be with me in paradise. Now the next sentence. There is need of constant watchfulness and of earnest loving devotion, comma, semicolon. But these will come naturally when the soul is kept by the power of God through faith We can do nothing, absolutely nothing, to commend ourselves to divine favor. We must not trust at all to ourselves nor to our good works. But when as erring sinful beings we come to Christ, we may find rest in His love. God will accept everyone that comes to Him trusting wholly in the merits of a crucified Savior. Love springs up in the heart. There may not be an ecstatic feeling, but there will be a peaceful abiding trust. Every burden becomes light, for the yoke which Christ imposes is easy. Duty becomes a delight. Sacrifice becomes a pleasure. The path that before was shrouded in darkness becomes bright with the sun of righteousness. This is walking in the light as Jesus is in the light. Now I'm going to go back to where I started. I want you to do what's right, even if you're doing it for the wrong reason. But I want you to find the right reason real quick. And the right reason is focusing your attention Look what Jesus has done. We need to stop focusing our attention on the wrong that we have done. We need to stop focusing our attention on the wrong that other people have done. We need to focus our attention on the right that Jesus has done. And listen to Jesus' voice saying to all of us, you will be with me in paradise. And you think, I'm not worthy. Praise the Lord if you come to that conclusion. I'm not worthy. Because Jesus is the only one that was worthy. And I think of my favorite theme song. I was guilty with nothing to say. They were coming to take me away. And then a voice from heaven was heard and it said, let him go and take me instead. I should have been crucified. I should have suffered and died. I should have hung on the cross in disgrace. But Jesus, God's son, took my place.
Let's bow our heads. Dear Jesus in heaven, we can never look to ourselves or our strength or to somebody else's strength except God's. And Jesus, help us to wake up every morning thinking, if I had died in my sleep last night, this would be resurrection morning. I don't deserve it. But Jesus has had mercy on me. And rejoicing in that mercy is what will give us the strength to live for Jesus day by day. Help us to do what the Bible says. Gird up the loins of our mind and be hopeful. Amen. Dear Jesus, I think of the words in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that says, By beholding, we become changed into the same image. Jesus, help us to look at you and think about you, not just on Sabbath, but on Sunday and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, every day of the week. Help us keep looking at Jesus and seeing how much mercy he has, how much goodness he has, that we can become like you. This is my prayer for myself and everyone here today. In Jesus' name, amen.